Network, proudly presented by the Mr. Fusion Home Energy Reactor. The ideal product when your Iranian contacts haven't come through and you're stuck in a plutonium jam. Just throw in a banana skin, the dregs of a beer, and any old household rubbish you can get your hands on, and your flying DeLorean will be good to go. That's the Mr. Fusion Home Energy Reactor. Get it now. Excellent. Uh, I am Rylan Grant, uh, amped up and ready to go. Uh, screenwriter, Ringo Award-winning creator of fine comics like Aberrant Banjax and now Suicide Jockeys. Uh, the other voice in the dark, the man in the box to the left is... David Avalone, uh, comic book writer, film person, and uh, coffee achiever. And man with a glorious beard. I'm loving yes. it. Yes, the beard is a little out of control. It's got a lot of white in it, a lot of white. Yeah, I, I noticed a, a few years back that uh, I now have a lot of white also, and I think that that's why, uh, you know, I used to kind of be a little more, uh, I don't know, just kind of like caution to the wind with it. But um, yeah. yeah, now a little too much. I get a little too much white. I think I... Yeah, uh, the, the, yeah. my wife and I are doing Roy Kent and Keeley from uh, Ted Lasso for Halloween, nice. but yeah. I, I think I look more like Niles Calder. <laughs> I think I look a little more, even more sinister in my way. Yeah, um, you could do a lot of things. You could do a good Will Riker with a that lot. I, last time I had a beard for Halloween, it was Captain Nemo because I was apparently feeling like a middle-aged terrorist that year. Nice. Yeah. Uh, if you just like, yeah, if you just like put your leg up on something and kind of like you know just squat in behind somebody, you could really uh, pull a Riker off. I think you should. Uh, yeah. Well, you should it out. So if you have multiple I, I will never feel tall enough for a Riker, but that's you know. <laughs> That's, 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 just pers that's just my own personal. Yeah, that's um, fair. Today's guest. Uh, oh, well, well, it, well, 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 first, there is a little too much small talk. Let me say if you missed any of our previous conversations, uh, episodes featuring luminaries like David F. Walker, Matt Fraction, Stan Sakai, Kevin Eastman, and many more. Our entire catalog can be celebrated via YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, and other purveyors of worthwhile ear crack. So double on back and check that stuff out. We should fit plugs in. Uh, you got something? Um, uh, Elvira meets Vincent Price. Third issue should be coming out early November. I don't have an exact date on it. Things have been moving around on me. Uh, cool. and uh, they've started hyping an Elvira 40th anniversary project, which I believe is the thing that I just finished writing. <laughs> so that's coming yeah. to Kickstarter or Indiegogo one of these days. And it's awesome. Love it. Excited for it. Um, and uh, issue three of my uh, bonkers tokusatsu joint, Suicide Jockeys, is hitting comic shops today uh, via the fine folks at Source Point Press. Um, tokusatsu for the uninitiated is the Japanese sci fi action genre that includes uh, stuff like Power Rangers and Super Sentai and Ultraman. Um, uh, it also includes Kaiju Fair, like Voltron, uh, uh, Kaiju Fair, like, um, like Godzilla. This is going really well. Um, uh, in a nutshell, Suicide Jockeys is Fast and Furious meets Voltron with an extra kind of dollop of heart and soul and a little Zen philosophy thrown in there. Um, it is a wildly fun ride, so go check it out. Um, but yeah, we've talked for too long, so let's bring our uh, esteemed guests on, huh? Bring in Gary and Anthony. Hello. Hello, Gary. Hey, hey. How you doing? And you're both in Australia, and it's tomorrow morning. Is that correct? That's correct. I was in Australia, and it is today, and you're in the past. So uh, We are in the past. Yes. We are. <laughs> We're going from the past. Both against the current. Yeah. Born yeah. Ceaselessly Time is relative. 
Yes, exactly. Anthony, tell us a little about yourself and Soda and Telepaths. Uh, yeah, so I'm the owner of and founder of SodaandTelepaths.com, which is a pop culture and comic book website. I'm also the curator and I guess you could say editor of a upcoming anthology called Pro Producing the End of the World. And I guess you could say if End of the World isn't your thing, then it's not for you. Um, it's just, <laughs> I mean, I don't know what to tell you. Um, I listened to this podcast a fair bit, and David, you say uh, I'm, I'm bringing out Elvira meets um, Vincent Price, and if it's not for you, I don't know what to tell you. And just at the same time, I don't know what to tell you. If End of the World scenarios aren't for you, then sure. don't know why you're here. If, yeah, if, if you dig, if you dig that, you dig that is, uh, exactly. is, is I believe how you put it. Yeah. yeah. And Gary, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, I'm a writer and an editor. Um, I, for what we're talking about today, the most relevant sort of stuff is that I've done some editorial work for Gestalt Publishing, most notably uh, Tom Taylor and James Brower's The Deep. Cool. Um, so, yeah, that's my experience. Cool. Thanks. And I, well, I, 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 I... I complimented Avalon, I complimented Avalonis, uh glorious facial hair uh, 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 earlier. Um, all three, all three of our guests. Uh, I mean, our guests also have amazing facial hair. I'm sitting here cleanly shaven. I'm feeling inadequate. I'm feeling like less of a man. Uh, it's actually a, it's a it's a counterclockwise time lapse. Really, <laughs> follow it around before and after. Shaven before and after. Slowly, and then Gary, boom. Yeah, the full, the full Gimli, the Incredible. full, uh, the full yeah. beard. But uh, I want to grow a beard. Try our product. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. Hair club for men's chins. That's nice. what we're uh, that's what we're selling today. But uh, Anthony, I wanted we wanted to start off with uh, talking about you have this pop culture website, which is great. So then telepaths. And uh, what made you want to morph that into becoming a pub publisher and editor? I guess um, it just came from a really simple place of me wondering if I could do it. That that's uh, there's no sort of getting around it. That's that's pretty much what it was. I for a while now I've sort of had this idea of um, doing a doing an anthology, which is completely centered around apocalyptic and post-apocalyptic stuff because uh you know ever since i was a young kid and i heard and i saw our terminator and i heard that that intro uh well saw the intro scene where you kind of hear that um the creaking of this of the swing set that to me is just that kind of that that haunting sort of futuristic um uh i guess uh dystopian world and to me that it presents a very interesting sort of uh, commentary on not only how people can see the future, but also on how, uh, uh, I guess, the human experience as a whole. So the idea was I, a couple of years back I saw this, saw this uh, picture online where uh, it's, it's pretty much this, there's this guy sitting in a chair and sort of in front of a completely decimated sort of landscape where buildings are destroyed and disheveled and all these sorts of things. And then I thought about the whole idea of 
what if you added director on the back of his chair and then all <laughs> of a sudden he is sort of producing his own sort of nightmare. So that was sort of the idea. So the way with this anthology we're producing, um, we're producing the end of the world, it's the idea is that they're not really short stories as much as they are short episodes in terms mm-hmm. of how um, how each writer, how each artist sort of views the, I guess, the humanism and the humanistic component in a end of the world scenario. Nice. And Gary, did you write a story in the book or are you an editor on it? Yeah. Uh, I did write a story in the book, but I am also assistant editor on the book. Great. Um, so, yeah, I'm really impressed by what Anthony does with Soda and Telebath. And it's, it's a beautiful book. I was looking at uh, the, the preview you sent me earlier today as well. And uh, it's, the, it's all very, very, very well done. My generation grew up with the Pope, the mid Cold War, the world yep. can end at any minute in a flash. Uh, and that changed obviously in the early 90s. But the climate apocalypse is the, is the new and more obvious one looming on the horizon. And I noticed that a bunch of stories in the book really deal with that uh, because that is the apocalypse now for want of a better mm. way of putting it that is that yeah. is the the thing at the at the front of everyone's mind mm. it's also quite boring as well the the one we're in the one we're experiencing right now it's very <laughs> boring and sort of drawn out and <laughs> um yeah i like that you've edited you've edited so many stories about apocalypse or apocali, uh, uh, I, I don't know, apocalypses, uh, that you are now a very harsh critic of apocalypses. <laughs> well, like, uh, know, this, this, one, this, this one would totally not make the cut. So let's... <laughs> yeah, well, well yeah, they, you know, uh, the, obviously the, the authors of the Old Testament cut out the couple of years leading up mm. to the pl- flood and just went right to it started raining and then the world was over not mm. like you know cut cut past the melting ice caps and the you know all of that uh just get right to the point where it's you know it's over in 40 days uh yep. because you know it's art you got to get right to it uh mm. but i did notice story. that people looked climate apocalypse into uh what you guys were doing in a you know in a in a, a great and dramatic fashion yeah, well, that one's that that particular story is uh, one of the first ones that actually came in. So that one, uh, Dark Storm, I think you're referring to that one. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then we've also got one where it's a, a, a complete satire and sort of commentary on what we've just experienced, which may or may not in, involve a giant lizard. Um, oh, sorry, <laughs> insect. Um, we've also, uh, and we've kind of... Um, as much as we're providing a commentary on, uh, I guess, narrative on end of the world situations, we've sort of, I made a very conscious decision from the start that I do not want any more zombie stories. So just sick to death of them. I mean, at the end of the day, if someone's going to want to see a zombie comic book, they're not going to support this Kickstarter. They're not going to support <laughs> this anthology. They're going to go pick up something by Kirkman, you know? Yeah. So it's just, um, uh, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I did an apocalyptic thing last year that was very much about COVID. And it was a zombie thing, but it was very much a satire of zombie things because I – 
I will confess I am not a fan. Uh, I, I, I won't go on too long a rant about it, but I always feel like zombie stories are supernatural stories pretending to be science fiction stories, and it pisses me off. They always say, like, oh, it's a space virus. Yeah, but it's a space virus that turns you into an Eastern European vampire for some reason who, like, has a whole bunch of rules about you have to be shot in the head and you can live without a digestive system, apparently, but you're still hungry for things. There's just a lot of, like, there's a lot of fudge in there. Uh, and I'm like, no, this is just a variation on Werewolf. This isn't really a science fiction concept you've come up with. Uh, and it's funny because if you trace back the origins of yeah, the zombie uh, mythology, mysticism. it's vampires also. It's it's in uh, I Am Legend by Richard Matheson really kicks off the zombie thing. But in his book, there's vampires. They're vampires in, if you've ever seen The Last Man on Earth, the Vincent Price picture, which obviously is in the front of my mind these days. Boy, does that look a lot like Romero's Night of the Living Dead. Like, visually, thematically, it feels like it. And I think Romero even admitted he kind of copped the whole mythos from there. It's just yeah. fascinating. You know, there's that little bit of us that remembers, no, zombies are the, it's, that's the Haitian thing where you drink a magic potion and you can't be killed. That's a very, that's very different from space monsters eating brains. But, you know, big digression on... On all that, Gary, have you have you been drawn to apocalyptic stuff previously? Is that a, an interest of yours, or uh, it absolutely is? Um, I think the most interesting thing about any apocalyptic story is how people deal with it. Sure, um, and I think that's probably part of why when Anthony says this one that we're living through now is no good, is people aren't dealing with it for the most part. We're kind of ignoring it yeah. in ways that are surprising to me. Um, so, you know, stories is always about people, isn't it? Yeah. And how they deal with, in some well, cases, extraordinary circumstances. And, you know, look at the premise of a lot of post-apocalyptic stories, including Watchmen. The idea, the motivating idea is that an apocalyptic event brings humanity together. And one thing we have learned is mm, George Miller may have had a better take on how humanity behaves when... Mm things even begin to just a little bit fall apart. Uh, mm. We've been living in a very Mad Max couple of years. Uh, not not to pander to the Australian listeners in the audience, but uh, <laughs> it, is certainly, it is certainly felt that way, you know, with the humongous in the White House and all of that. Mm. But, uh, but, yeah. So do you have any plans to do another anthology? Are you going to see how this one goes? When does it launch, by the way? That's the other question. Uh, yeah, so November 12th, um, so that's when it'll be launching. Um, plans to do another one. So um, uh, Gary and I have spoken about this, and um, I'm not going to rush to it because I'm not going to lie, it's been about nine, ten months of work. So, um, yeah. yeah, so, I mean, there's just so many moving parts when it comes to an anthology, and uh, I've spoken to other indie publishers that uh which is just like oh i know what you're going through really do you know one story times 18 um oh mm -hmm. shit that's 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 what it's like and it's like yeah it's very much the wrangling of different personalities that's an interesting sort of element to it there's the the at times having to uh i guess 
appreciate different personalities and and I guess um, also um, understand where they're coming from because they're from different stages in their comic book writing and comic book artistry career. So at, at times they're going to be a little bit more easygoing and at other times they're going to be a bit more don't know if diva-ish is the right word, but, you know, <laughs> let's go with it. Um, so <laughs> um, so it's the – I think if I did do another anthology, we'd probably take – it's probably something we do either once every two years or we'd sort of halve the amount of stories. Sure. Yeah. What did you Where say? Did it's, eight, it's 18 stories? Yeah. Where did um uh, you know where did your talent pool come from? I mean I know uh, uh, you know being one of the you know top uh, you know comic sites out there um, you have the access and whatnot. But um, I mean were there people that you specifically wanted to go to? Did you kind of just throw the doors open for submissions? How did uh, how did that work? I mean how did you scout these people? So I uh, so you lost. Uh, I guess point is is more accurate. So sort of, mm. uh, yeah, through the doors open for submissions. And I feel like um, uh, where we went right was in the initial pitch for the anthology itself. I've seen a lot of anthologies for pitches and I guess comic book talent hunts. And, and I feel like those that don't succeed and don't, don't get that many, uh, I guess, people inquiring about them is or even submitting to them is the ones that don't really have a clear vision of what they're trying to do, aren't very good at communicating what they're trying to do. I mean, from the from the start, my initial pitch to people, because I, I mean, at the end of the day, you've got to you still you've got to garner the interest of people. You've got to sort of sell to them why they should should take the time out of their day to pitch something to you. So, I mean, from the from the start, it's very much been a this, this is an apocalyptic anthology in the vein of uh, Love, Death and Robots, Animatrix and uh, Heavy Metal. If you enjoy that, if you enjoy stories that sort of uh, provide a narrative on, uh, on, I guess, end of the world, then submit to, our, submit to our anthology. And from that, I mean, it was a lot more detailed than that, of course, but uh, from that we got, got quite a bit of interest. We got... Um, Got a, about a hundred, I think it was about a hundred and sixty creators all up, mm. and about and over a hundred of them were writers. So mm. yeah, yeah. Interesting. Makes, so yeah, I'm, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that makes sense because it's you know, writing an eight-page story is a shorter experience than drawing an eight-page story. So I can see where writers would be more immediately drawn to that kind of thing. I did notice that you've. It seems like you've got all or at least 80% of the work done prior to even launching the Kickstarter. Is that accurate? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So I thought it was really important that uh, everyone, uh, that in the pitch itself, that everyone knew what they were getting into and everyone understood that they're going to get paid once the Kickstarter is successful. Sure. If, if it's not successful, then that's it. You keep the story. You can, I'm not going to keep the the likeness, I'm not going to keep that. You can keep that and, you know, add it to your portfolio. But it's, uh, I felt like it was important to be as transparent as possible, especially with, you know, recent developments of uh, places like Action Lab and all, and sort of the stories <laughs> that have come from companies like that. And I'm of sure course. off camera and off recording, Roland, you can comment on that. So I feel <laughs> like it's, um, 
it's just best to give as much sort of, uh, I guess, foreknowledge and foresight on, on how we're going to uh, go about this. Yeah, I, I mean, what, what do you think is the key to, I don't know, you know, having the right deal for a creator, having the right contract for a creator when you're, uh, you know, when you're running one of these things? I think that's a very important thing because it's, um, I don't want to, I don't want to name names, but there have been some, I don't know if you can call them high profile or whatever, but there have been some, some anthologies recently where creators were really kind of rubbed wrong by by the contracts they were being offered and you know pulling their stories okay. and stuff like that i mean i think it's like i think it's such a delicate dance so what was what were kind of the important like tenants of a contract and uh in terms of you i mean i i'm, I'm interested because it sounds like you're really going into it being like okay well we want to give these guys a fair shake we want to make it worth their while we want to be upfront. we want to and, and, and maybe i'm just maybe i'm just checking boxes right now for you but um, but 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 I'm I'm wondering that because I mean as a as a guy who's I mean just to tell you the truth I mean I've I've considered doing this myself so I'm wondering um, you know in terms of uh, managing the creators and striking the deals with the creators what does a guy like me have to know? Um, uh, so from the creator level or from the uh, uh, creator in the anthology or from the level of someone. I'm saying you're, you're 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 the guy running the anthology, so in ter you know yeah. you're the one you're the one offering the contract, cutting the deal, and everything, and 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 so you know what do you, um, you know, w w w I mean, uh, what was your thought process, right? I mean, uh, like, uh, I mean, you you already said you're looking to kind of you know give people a a fair deal to be upfront with them about this and that and the other things. Um, did you get feedback from the creators about what they were looking for, all that stuff? That's that, I, you know I, I, I'm 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 asking. I want to see kind of behind the curtain, you know, a uh, 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 yeah. business of all this stuff. The 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 legal machinery is very interesting to me. I guess um, in terms of that, uh, it was more, I guess, sort of figuring out um, the the background and experience from each creators. And I mean, uh, for each writer, um, every writer knew that they were getting paid twenty five dollars per page. That that much was in the pitch. So. They knew what they were getting themselves into. When it came to the artists, it was more about sort of uh, figuring out the the talent of the artist, uh, the portfolio of the artist, and sort of finding sort of a happy medium in terms of how much we're willing to pay them per page. So, so um, you, you were you were negotiating specific page rates with each yeah, artist. Correct. That's yeah, correct. That's interesting. Okay. Yeah, what about correct. what about things like uh, rights reversion? Did you have uh, that laid out? They don't. Um, uh, we don't keep. Well, I'm not keeping the rights at all mm -hmm. in any way, shape, or form. If uh, uh, you know, a month after the anthology is released, if the writer or artist wants to take the uh, story and uh, you know submit it to a film company, if they want to expand upon it into a four four issue series, then they have full rights to. Because the way I see it is, if that happens, then that per it can only work in my favor because that person's story, if that's successful, they're going to talk about where it originally came from. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's that's the way I look at it. I don't look at it as a oh, I need to keep the rights of it because I don't need to keep the rights of it because where I'm at right now, I'm not a publisher so much. Still more of a a, a website putting out a anthology. So. I, I have no interest in keeping the rights. Mm -hmm. I think that's an important 
that's that's an important and attractive thing. Uh, I know I did an anthology last year, and I know, you know, I wouldn't want to hazard a percentage of the people that worked with you that had the same attitude. But for me, it was like, well, this is barely going to pay me anything. It didn't pay as well as your anthology, by the way. And uh, <laughs> but I but I have this idea that I've wanted to see on a page, and I can do an eight-page pilot of it. I can do a short story of it as a sort of test drive of the idea. And I think that's an invaluable thing that anthologies do for you is they give you a chance to go like, let me shoot my pilot and put it out and see if people like it, see if the artist does a good job with it. I was very lucky in that respect. I had a great artist who did, who agreed to do it uh, for a, you know, literally just for uh in the, in the name of good fellowship uh i did end up giving the artist most of the money that came in from the project just because she worked on it for a couple of weeks i did not yeah <laughs> and, I, and, and, I, and she she was not getting a page rate from the no she was not the, she was getting a split from the they gave everyone a split from the proceeds from what was left over you know there's basically what it yeah. takes to produce the book and Every art, every story team got a percentage of what was done. That said, this book also had, I can't even remember how many stories. It had a lot of stories in it. I think it had more than 18. So that, there was a lot being split up. But again, I think we all did it because we're, we all had at least one idea where we're like, this doesn't really fit in anything else that I'm doing I'm not really going to get an opportunity to do this somewhere else. Uh, this is not a pitch that my current pub publisher wants to hear from me. So there are all sorts of reasons you want to come up with something that'll go in an anthology. And I'm sure that, you know, that's not how everybody approaches anthologies. But for me, at least, uh, when they suggested it to me, I was like, well, this would be a good place to do that. And uh, I, I have to wonder if, you know, a bunch of the people you were working with had the same attitude. Um, I think for the most part, the answer would be yes. I think most of them did have, uh, most of the people involved uh, fans of the site already. So I guess that part is, um, so sort of that trust is there in the site and in the content I've produced previously. So I think that there, and and some of them, uh, the writers involved, um, haven't even released a comic book story. So I think it was more about the, for them, the attractive part is the opportunity to have a story out there for some of them in a medium they've never tapped before. Mm. Uh, for some of them, in a medium they've wanted to tap before but just have not had the opportunity to, to do so and for the uh, sort of the remaining pool is to get more opportunities out there add to their portfolio sure yeah, yeah it's just inter it becomes this interesting proving ground right it becomes a um i don't know like i i, I minor league baseball has like a bad connotation to it when you're thinking about this stuff, but it's, you know, again, I mean, I, I, I became a filmmaker and before I, you know, was making Hollywood movies, I, I made a bunch of short films and, and that's exactly what these people are doing. It's, you know, people who are, uh, who are coming out and they're testing out ideas and they're testing out their craft and they're learning to put pages together and panels together and it comes together in a really interesting way. So, I mean, that, that's part of it. And, you know, I, um, 
I do a lot of panels at, at Comic-Cons. I organize them. I, I put the panels together. And one of my more popular ones, the one I've done more than, than any, is publishing your first comic. And, you know, the, a con hall at, at San Diego Comic-Con ends up filled with, like, 200 people, 150 of which, like, have never, you know, or 175 of which have never told a comic story in their life. They've always wanted to. And it seems so fucking daunting, right? You know, okay, uh, I need to come up with my 10-issue fucking series. <laughs> or, or, or even doing a single issue of anything ends up being this huge deal for me. And, and, and where that conversation inevitably goes is find a good anthology, tell your five-page story, tell your eight-page story, tell your 10-page story, prove an idea. And, um, and Avalone has this great point where it becomes this almost like idea farm, this idea salon. I mean, one of the, one of the most formative things that ever happened to me as a writer was um, uh, when I was at the University of Michigan and I'm starting to study, you know, art for the first time seriously. Um, and I ended up with a, ended up graduating with a triple major in, uh, in, in film theater and, and art history basically. But, um, when I got into the theater program, um, I, as, as part of my theater degree, I had to take, uh, 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 theater directing classes. Um, but I was in there as somebody from the writer program. And so my main, um, you know, my main job ended up being, well, I was writing scenes for the people in the directing class to direct, right? And um, and there were a couple of us, a couple of people from, you know, from, from the writing program. And so you had three of us and we were kind of like, you know, loud, swaggery assholes and we're all trying to outdo each other, right? And so, and, and so it's, it's kind of like you're talking about where the, the professor would stand up and be like, okay, we want a, we want a scene in a, a bar in Guatemala. And, and that's the sandbox you get to play in. <laughs> and so the number of things that can happen in a bar in Guatemala, uh, you know, and use tomatoes. Um, and we would tell these great stories, right? And we did this for like two semesters. We did this for an entire year of school, just, you know, one after another stories, like, you know, in weird sandboxes like that. And the amazing shit we came up with, like I still go back to it, you know? I am, uh, you know, I, 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 was, I was writing the Jump 3 um uh this week and and i actually i i went back into the old files from uh from those theater classes and i was pulling something it was like just a little tidbit from something you know and um and 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 just those warm-up exercises just those things where you're kind of like pouring ideas out can be very great and Avalonia, i think you left something out because like the if i'm not wrong and and, and tell me if i'm speaking out of turn here also but uh, the story that you just did for the anthology, you have a full series workup for that. Oh yeah. Right? That, oh yeah. yeah. I didn't, I had a, I had a fair amount of it written and I didn't actually use the part I had written because I still want to use that. I wrote a prologue uh, to it. That was a perfectly good standalone prologue. It's luckily a very episodic idea. Um, it's uh, very quickly, my father, when he told me bedtime stories as a little boy, true story, World War II veteran, novelist, he would tell me all of the Grimm's fairy tales as World War II combat stories about himself. So like when he tells me the Little Red Riding Hood story, at the end, it's his squad that comes in and machine guns the wolf and saves Little Red Riding Hood. Literally, the first time I heard the story of sleeping... Yeah, no, the wolf's done. <laughs> but yeah, the first time I heard the story of Sleeping Beauty, it was literally like 
my unit pulled into a town in uh, Belgium and there was this chick in a glass box. Nobody could wake her up. You know, I heard them in that kind of voice and style. So I started <laughs> adapting that into a comic book and I hadn't actually done Hansel and Gretel. So I did a prologue to the thing I had already written using Hansel and Gretel called German chocolate. Um, and, uh, but again, it was, it, it, it worked as a standalone thing. It was a horror anthology and that does involve a witch sticking children in an oven. I thought that was enough horror to get me into a horror anthology. Uh, and she ends up being burned alive by an American soldier. So I think it all works out. But, uh, but yeah, it, it, there's the thing that anthologies and it's the same thing. Being a professional writer is people, you know, we'd love it if it was all, I am creating from the nebulous of my own mind. But really, the for me, a lot of the fun is what Ryland was talking about. Post-apocalyptic, producing the apocalypse. What are you, producing the end of the world. What does that, my father had a, a great quote. Um, and he sort of lived this quote, which is a good writer should be able to write anything from a garden seed catalog to the Holy Bible. And uh, I, I think there's a lot to be said for that. And sometimes you need someone to say, what you got for a garden seed catalog? And you go, really? I don't think I want to write that. But then you kick it around for a few days. Oh, I got a great, I had a great story about growing tomatoes. It's going to be fantastic. Uh, and it's, and finding that, you know, uh, is, it's the real treat to me of doing it professionally is that challenge of like, did I have an end of the world story this morning when I woke up? Not particularly. Am I trying to think of one now? <laughs> you know, yes. You know, because it's an interesting, it's an interesting submissions are closed. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm sorry to hear that. I should have submitted wow. something for this. I, should, I could have come up with something. Um, but it's a, uh, it, it to me again, it's 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 a big part of the fun of writing. There's a story I think Chakins told me the story that he got invited out to Hollywood to write television, and by a producer, and he asked the producer why you you know why you, why are you picking on a humble comic book writer to do this? And he's like because TV writers write they sit in the room and they write maybe one script a year. You guys have to come up with a new story every two, three weeks. Like any, especially a writer on a monthly comic, you're on a treadmill. These cats <laughs> not even remotely be able to handle. He's like, so his own opinion as a TV producer was that comic book writers were story factories just by the sheer weight of monthly deadlines. And I have to say for every, for everything about deadlines that is painful and annoying and keeps me up at night, uh, there's, I'm sort of also at my happiest when I got pages due and this is when they're due and you got to get them in. And there's an artist with pen poised above paper waiting for you to help them pay their mortgage, um, by giving them something to draw. And I think that that pressure is fantastic. I'm, I'm actually, I am, I am, maybe this is unusual for a writer. I'm a big fan of, of deadlines. Nebulous deadlines always make me lazy as hell. <laughs> I, 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 lo I love deadlines and I, I love a sandbox to play in. You know, um, I, one of the things I'm writing now is this, uh, you know, this, this thing Fa Sheng for, um, uh, for Immortal Studios. And it's a, it's a wuxia um, story 
um, you know, Shaolin Kung Fu story uh, set during the Boxer Rebellion. And um, that is a lot of very specific things. And we're dealing with very specific historical events. And um, and so, you know, if left to my own devices, you can write anything and everything and anywhere and anytime. Um, uh, that, that's fine. And that's great. And that's fun. And I've done that plenty. But when somebody says, do something, you know, you know, in, in, in this time frame, uh, in this place with, with this, you know, very specific political climate happening and, and this, that, and the other thing, like that is really interesting. And you go in and you kind of, you take it apart and you put it back together and you fall in love with elements of the time and the place and the politics and all of these things. And, um, you know, just gives you really interesting building blocks, you know what I'm saying? And, and there's something to, it frees you, it frees up bandwidth, right? You know, I mean, imagine like if, you know, if you, uh, if you get, you get Legos and the blocks are already there and it's make something out of these Legos, you can make something very interesting and very complex. And, uh, you're going to be putting pieces together in ways that nobody ever has. Right. Um, if you have to make the blocks and then put something together, right. <laughs> you, you have spent half your, your bandwidth, uh, half your creativity actually making the blocks. Right. Um, and so you can argue that your structure is not going to be as complex and as interesting and all of that stuff. So when somebody hands you beautifully made building blocks, um, I think that that does something to the story. It charges it up with something, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and then, I mean, in the case of this, this Wuxia story, it's like, well, um, I mean, this history is rich and wonderful and interesting, uh, and, and, and challenging. Um, so they're really pretty fucking blocks. And it's something interesting about your anthology again, is that, I mean, you, you have a, you have a very interesting concept. And, and I think that, um, the thing I think you did right is, and, and, and Anthony, you sort of said this, but let me hit it right on the on the head here. Is like you didn't. It wasn't just apocalypse go. You know what I'm saying? You 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 gave them you gave them you built a very specific sandbox for them to play in. It's, it's still room to to make the story theirs and all of these things, but you're like these these are our influences. This is the style we're looking for. These are the you know these are the elements that we're interested in. Um, and, and, you know, there's this argument to be made for the more specific you get, the more kind of interesting and challenging the, the, the stories become, right? And, and I think more than anything, um, the more unified everything feels in the end, right? I mean, because I, I, I read, you, you sent over, I, I don't know if it was five of your stories or, or whatever, and they were, yeah. all, they were all very different as they should be because they're different creators coming from different places. And, but, um, but they also felt like they all belong together, you know, and, 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 yeah, and you, yeah. you don't always get that or even usually get that with an anthology, you know? And so, so, so again, if I'm going back to, if I'm going back to, I guess, trying to get from you, like the, the, the manual for doing one of these, like if I was going to do, do one of these and I'm looking for like the pieces of advice from you, like this is a key one to take, right. Is like, okay, well, how, how do you, how do you get that unity of, of, of kind of theme and message or, or how do these things all feel like they belong together? Like, I think that that's a very hard thing to navigate. I think you need to set sort of, um, uh, I guess, boundaries in terms of what you're trying to achieve. You need to set um, sort of almost like a ruling system around what you're trying to achieve as well. I think, um, I think a lot of the, the pitch and I guess the symmetry between all the stories just, uh, comes from myself being a 
being in sales and marketing for almost 20 years and I'm just I'm used to seeing in front of uh, like C-level people and talking to them about this is how I can add value to your business and I feel like um uh, when you when you're in the initial pitch stage uh, you need to think about how can I add so much value that this is going to be a sort of a different take that this is going that other writers and artists are actually going to want to be involved in this in the first place and I feel like that's that's sort of uh, where where people can go wrong because I've seen some pictures out there not just for anthologies but uh, I've seen some really horrible ones out there where this is what we're doing. We want you to write a story in our universe. Go. And it's just kind of like, well, you've given me no reason to be actively interested in your universe. And here's a thought, genius. You don't even have any information anywhere online about what your universe actually is. So, um, yeah, it's it's sort of that stuff. I've, I, Yeah, that's... That's sort of where my take on it as well. I think we're at this point now where you can't afford to not understand how comics work, like the mechanisms of comics, from the budget to, most importantly, at least from from my side, from uh, how comics press works. I mean, mm. the amount of times I've been approached by someone going, oh, my Kickstarter started two weeks ago can I appear on your podcast or can you write up an article? And it's just kind of like, no, uh, come on, come on, mate. You've known about your, you've known about your project for how many months and now yeah. you're approaching me for it. I think um, if you're creating, it doesn't, know, and this, these rules don't have to apply to just an anthology. Even if you're just creating one issue or just a standalone issue, you need to sort of understand how things work in the comic sphere it just it's not it's not a case so, uh, i mean even like today's podcast we've you know well to be fair you guys approached us but it's the un, the the original conversation between myself and the two of you was this is coming out in a couple of weeks uh can can i grab a pull quote off you guys and then understand that that you're busy too Yes, a pull quote doesn't take long, but you need to you need to um, give as much forewarning as you possibly can. Um, yeah, you can't tell people I need a pull quote from you by Monday. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <it's> like <laughs> I'm, one of the Elvira projects I'm doing, I think I finished writing it two weeks ago, three weeks ago, and I need Cassandra to write the uh, dedication. We're dedicating it to an old friend of hers who passed away. And when I finished it, you know, October 1st or whenever, I wrote her and said, here's the script and I need this thing from you, which is maybe two, three lines of writing. And she said, oh, what's your deadline? And I said, October, I said, well, I know you're, this is your busy month. So November 3rd, <laughs> like I, I need this by at least after, you know, a, you have a couple of days after Halloween to actually write it. I know I'm asking you October 1st. But we all know you're not doing anything until November 1st that is not related to the Elvira, you know, Halloween experience. But you can't tell someone who's that busy, I need these three lines for you by Monday. You have to actually say, you got a month, <laughs> you know, because I, yeah. I know because I know, yeah. the thing is, you never know. I think amateurs always go, 
well, but what is it? It's just three lines. What does it take you two seconds to write? It's like, yes, and I have a list of a hundred people who need three lines from me. Mm. <laughs> and you're now and you're now the hundred and first person on that list. Also, it's like my, my name is gonna be on this thing. Like I, I you know, yeah, I, I can I can physically write three lines in a minute and a half, but I need to read the story, I need to digest the story, I need yeah. to the 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 quote I end up with has to you know, it has to reflect the story, right? I think, you know, Anthony, the quote I gave you references, it makes a specific clever reference to one of your, your end of the world stories. You know what I'm saying? And and, and that, that doesn't come about uh, uh, without time and without me workshopping and, and trying something and failing and then finding the right one. It's like, you want the right quote. And, and, and yeah, if somebody comes to me and it's like, I need something by, by, by Monday, usually what they get is, fuck you, or they get ignored, uh, the best they will get is pretty good, you know, <laughs> or, 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 or something that, that without saying pretty good says pretty good, because it's not, it's not actually going to be reflective of anything that's in there because it, you know, there's, there's, there's not the time for that. Uh, uh, there's not the respect coming from that person for that. Um, uh, but yeah. There's also the dynamic of, and let's be honest, not all com comics are good comics. Um, in, in fact, there's quite a lot of not good comics on there. Do you as a professional want your name associated with something that's just complete garbage? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Because, yeah. uh, I mean, there's, uh, I guess, New York Times are the worst for this. Uh, I mean, how many times has Stephen King said, this is amazing, this is on my must-read list, and this is the best... Uh, you know, book of the 21st century. Yeah. All right, Stephen, your, your list of best books of the 21st century yeah. game. Pretty long there, mate. <laughs> they're, they're in Spy Magazine. I don't know if you remember or I've heard of Spy Magazine. In the 1980s, a very funny satirical magazine out of New York City. And they had a monthly column called Log Rolling in Our Time. And what log rolling refers to is people trading blurbs. And it would literally be two writers who had a book come out the same month and their blurbs for one another, you know, like here's all, here's all of the people paying each other back for the blurbs that they got from one another. And yeah, you want to one. Yeah. I want to make sure it's something that, you know, if you, if your if your name or your brand has any value, if you recommend something and people read it and it's trash, they will then begin the process of no longer, listening to you or taking you seriously. So you want to write something that's honest and true and yeah, not, not endorsing something that they're going to come back and go, you told me to read this thing and it was crap. What the hell's wrong with you? Um, so yeah, it's a hard, Yeah, I, mean, I, will, I, I, I will say that people have asked me for blurbs and things on stuff that I didn't think was great. And I just kind of forget to answer that email until the book's already been published. Yeah. I'm sorry. We're, we're, we're making this a little too black and white a conversation. There, sure. There's this other side to this. You don't want your name uh, associated with like utter trash or hate Drac or, or, or shit like yeah. that, of course. Right. And so you're going to get a healthy fuck you from me if you send me some shit like that. Right. Um, I, all that said, like, you know, there is, there are people that are a little too, I don't know, on edge and cheesy about this. You know what I'm saying is like 
something that's solid, you know, it's not going to end your career to give that person a yeah. good blurb. There is something good about yeah. everything, right? And 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 you guys know better than anyone because you just did one of these, you know, huge anthologies. Um, what goes into actually producing this stuff? I mean, it is so fucking difficult, and it is such a uh, a, a colossal victory to get one of these things across the finish line in print somewhere uh, uh, on a Kickstarter, any of this shit, right? Um, and so doing something to celebrate that, um, uh, uh, particularly if it's a, if somebody's asking me for a pull quote, they're, they are a friend, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> um, uh, I mean, every once in a while you get somebody that comes out of the fucking woodwork and it's like, really, dude, <laughs> you know, but for the most part, it was like, you know, when I was not surprised when Anthony reached out and said, Hey, can we have a pull quote on this? Of course. You know what I'm saying? Um, uh, and, and, and it helped that when I, when I read these stories, I, I really liked them. And so I didn't have to, uh, 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 you know, throw a softball or anything like that. Um, uh, but you know what I'm saying? Like, uh, it, it, most of the people that approach you, they're going to be friends to a certain degree. And, and again, they have done something like outstanding and, and, and incredible. And there was a way to say that without compromising your integrity or ending your career or any of these things. So that is a long winded way of saying the least you can do is give your friend a fucking pull quote. You know what oh, I'm absolutely. saying? Yeah. Also, I think that, I think the point, you know, going back to what Anthony said, yeah. what you don't do yeah. is call every single comic you're asked to blurb the greatest comic of the 21st yeah, yeah. century. Yeah. Like that's where it becomes nonsense. That's where you just yeah. go, really? Yeah. Like, you know, yeah. really this? There's there, there, there is a, there is an older cousin of this practice that is very important, and it's note giving. And a lot of people have not mastered this, right? Um, I get I get a lot of stuff to to note up um, from friends and and from you know, my writing partner and from all these things, and so much that I, I I don't get to any of it. And I've had to kind of shut the door on it. But not everything you 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 read is great or good or, or, or even passable. Right. <laughs> um, and so, and so the worst thing you could do is be like, this is fucking terrible. Go back to the drawing board or here is an avalanche of all the shit that is wrong with it. Uh, um, uh, I get pages from artists every day that are not done yet. Right. Um, uh, and, and you can get to your notes, but the first thing you have to do is like, Hey, great job here. Right. Uh, here are the the two, three, four, five things that are great about it. Now let's get to all the shit that needs to change. Uh, all the shit that's terrible, though I can't tell you it's terrible. I need to tell you, you know what I'm saying? Um, and if you can just do that, if you can just lead with like, hey, man, yeah. uh, incredible effort here. Um, the, the, the expressions you're getting on these faces are awesome. Like, keep doing it. Uh, people are going to love you for it. Now let's get to the 30 things that need to change. A pull quote is the same thing. Great effort here. The Those facial expressions just had me fucking, you know, uh, uh, gripping, man. That was awesome. That's your pull quote. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, like, forget about the rest of it. As long as it's not Drek, as long as it's not fucking hate speech, or as long as it's not whatever, uh, uh, give them the first two lines of the, uh, of the notes document, right? Yeah. Yeah, totally. And... I believe that um, adding to that is uh, if you're creating a comic or an anthology, in my case, I, I've i edited plenty of articles. Have I edited comics before? No, not really. Do I have some idea of how comic scripts should look? 
yes. But I think um, my any success that this anthology has is due to Gary uh, coming on board as assistant editor because of his experience with Gestalt Comics and get yourself an editor, even if it's just an assistant editor, even if it's just someone to just bounce your ideas off because, um, I mean, there's been plenty of times with Ga- with Gary where I've called him up and just been like, am I being unreasonable and expecting a writer <laughs> to change this? Is this reading a different way to how it should? Um, what did you think about this art? Does this need to change all those sorts of things? But sort of Gary can speak to to that no first off thank you for that um <laughs> that's really nice um yeah like going back to your uh, your notes thing i i tend to present it when i'm giving notes as an editor as um a shit sandwich so you start off with something nice and then in the middle you give the note you actually want to give and you fin it finish it with something nice so that they walk away from the interaction feeling good but hopefully somewhere in the back of the mind they're remembering the meat of the sandwich or the yep. shit of the sandwich, as it were. Um, so I think being an editor is a lot about people management and understanding how to get from people what you want without being tyrannical. Sure. Uh, yeah. Without without them walking away from the interaction hating you. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah I, I will say that, and sometimes I'm being overly nice and sometimes it's 100% true. A lot of times when I see art that's not at all what I wrote, I will definitely start with, I think I have, I communicated this poorly in the script, but what that was supposed to be, what I meant to say was, sorry, it wasn't clear, but yeah. But, and you know, and again, I would say, (laughs) as per my email, (laughs) but I will say like a good 70% of the time, it, it's at least partly my communication of the idea. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like there are, there are things that you think should be clear. There are things that you think the artist will extrapolate from what happened earlier in the script and go, well, all these guys are those guys. I get that. And sometimes that just doesn't come across. And also here in the 21st century, a lot of us are working with artists who are not native English speakers all around the world Mm -hmm. and idioms will not come across. One of the first things I learned my very first comic book artist that I ever worked with was uh, living on an island off the coast of Morocco. I couldn't tell you off the top of my head from that if his first language was Spanish or French. It was definitely not English. But um, I learned not to write idiomatically in scripts. The dialogue can be whatever you want. <laughs> you know, the dialogue is going to be the dialogue. But the description of what's in the panel, I try to make that as bare bones real accurate no fucking around no metaphors no just like x is standing next to y his right hand is raised that's it you know like not he is angry you know as as inelegant as humanly possible uh but clarity is uh is everything because again you know one of the first things i read about writing comic books was neil gaiman saying you have an audience of one it's the only time you're a writer where you're, li- unless you're writing love letters, it's literally the only time as a writer you're writing to one person who has to understand everything that you say um, and understand it super well. 
And uh, that's a that to me, I learned that as sort of the critical part of the job, and I sort of keep with that. One thing that I wanted to get to uh, because of my own experience with it, uh, Anthony and Gary. Gary, did you have more experience with publishing previously, or or primarily as an editor? Yeah, so I'm I'm editor. Well, I work at one of the larger um, publishers in Australia, which isn't saying much. Um, that, that's Gestalt. Gestalt, yes. Yeah. Uh, we're still a very small publisher. And so in a small publisher, everybody wears a lot of hats. Sure. Uh, so I've done editorial. I've done any element of publishing that you can think of, yes, I've, I've got some experience. One of the that. things that I always recommend to comic book creators about Kickstarter, actually, is, oh boy, does publishing your own thing teach you something about how the entire industry works that you... All sorts of things you previously did not know, because there are, it is possible to work in this industry and not know what the window is for previews magazine, and not know that Diamonds is going to take half of your money and the comic book stores are going to take a quarter of the half that's left. You know, there's there's a lot of stuff that you find out, you know, and not to go easy on on big publishers, but it's like when I published my first. Kickstarter comic through Diamond after it had been successful on Kickstarter I then moved it through the legitimate system <laughs> my my primary response was how does anybody make a dime doing this holy shit these margins are brutal Same. like yeah. how does Raise anyone even make a dime off of an individual floppy is crazy making and I think it's actually good for comic book creators to know that <laughs> you know to, to to understand the difficulty of the whole thing not that i want them cutting publishers a break particularly when they're treated poorly but understanding just the bare reality mm-hmm. you know there's a great story about uh about movies but about sam fuller in the 50s wanted to make a movie about that had a interracial a white American lady with Japanese American police detective subplot. That was actually the main plot of the movie. And he went to his low-budget movie producer, financer, who looked at a map of America and went, okay, well, I can't sell that movie in Alabama, Mississippi, Texas. He said, but I can make a lot of money on it in San Francisco, Chicago, New York. He's like, okay, that gives me... You can make this movie for $500,000, you can make the movie, because I can make a profit on it. If it. So just like having that granular, like, this is what I can get away with, this is what this book is going to make. Before I self-published, I looked at those Comicron numbers and went, okay, so an indie comic that's like borderline successful sells about three to 4,000 issues. Like that's the, under that, you're in deep trouble over that, I mean, at least domestically in the States. Um, and just knowing that information as opposed to just having, you know, blithely put it, you put it out in the universe. I don't, I don't know how it did. I don't know what my publisher is up to. Uh, the more, you know, about the, the actual levers and pulleys and gears of the industry you're working in. I always argue in favor of that. I, I, Uh, I remember, I remember cutting my, my, my recent deal with SourcePoint. And we're getting down to percentages. You know, you get this, you get this percent, and I get that percent, and all that stuff. And I'm negotiating, right? So it's like, okay, well, let me let me try and bump this up five percent or whatever. Um, and it's all nebulous to me as a creator. 
right? You know, it's like, well, yeah, of course I'll ask for another 5%. Why wouldn't I? Um, And then, uh, you know, rather than having a nebulous comeback uh, at me, SourcePoint came back and said, look, we make, you know, we make 30 cents on this. (laughs) If I bump you up 5%, it means that I have to give you an extra 10 cents or, or whatever. And, uh, and then it means that we only make this, but we, you know what I'm saying? Like they get down to like, it was down to pennies and it's like, okay, well, if we give you a few more pennies, then we don't have the pennies to cover this. (laughs) And, um, and, and, and and they just, they just very cleanly and very specifically explain the math to me, like the dollars, like it wasn't dollars. It was literal cents. Um, and then I was totally fine with it. And, and yeah, if you can get a peek behind the curtain, it is so illuminating and it's so disarming. I, I, I had no negotiating power after that. I, I had been completely disarmed. Yeah. Well, again, I think, I think it, once, you've, once you've worn multiple shoes, you get, you see the picture in a bigger way and you see, oh yeah, they're not cheating me. They literally, they really don't have this money. <laughs> you know, they really, I mean, and again, there are people who are absolutely out there cheating you and that's a, you know, <laughs> that's a that is, that is a different. That's that another podcast episode. That's yeah. a different show. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. No, and we still like, you know, just like in the same way, the world so hasn't caught up in the same way that streamers don't tell you how many subscribers they have the numbers on comiXology are not particularly available to you either. Um, and that means that there's a giant black hole that money is going into that you don't know what's coming out of it, you know? And it's, uh, you know, the, 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 the whole model of just, I mean, it's what we're dealing with out in Hollywood right now with the, the possible IATSE strike. They still treat Disney Disney's streaming service falls under the same contract that my web series that I privately financed in 1999 falls under because it's a streaming contract. It's like those two things are not actually analogous. People should be paid more to work for Disney than they were paid by me to work on my two cent web series in 1999. Um, But yeah, I'm still waiting for my check on that, by the way. (laughs) But, uh, you know, it's uh, obviously having the most amount of information about what, what you are dealing with and what you're up against. I meant to ask, is what's the version of Diamond in Australia, or is it Diamond? What is the... It's Diamond, yeah. 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 Oh, it's it's diamond. diamond, or uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Gary, I think some retailers, like some, and I don't, not many, some will order direct. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, um, yeah, yeah it's... It's, it's most it's of them. Diamond. Most of them just do diamond, just because it's easy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, in another lifetime, I was a retailer, and mm. diamond is particularly horrible when you're over here. <laughs> well, oh, I yeah. mean, it's it's horrible over here. That, that was going to be my next question: is is diamond fucking shit up in Australia as badly as they're fucking shit up here in the states? Oh yeah, terrible. Yeah. I mean, I I was retailing back in 2007, so things were reasonably good for the comic industry at the time. But even then, I'm pretty sure my diamond contact was an intern, and it would probably be generous to say they had English as a second language. Um, and you know, I'd wait up till three a.m. to you know try and have a conversation with somebody who, never mind, not getting into idioms. They weren't getting literal sentences. So, yeah, yeah. diamond made life as difficult as it was possible. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mentioned that I've been in sales and marketing for a while and one, I guess, large portion of that career has been in finance. So um, in Australia, we have certain laws against monopolization and I'm just because of that, I guess, exposure, I'm, I'm often very wary of the sort of monopolization. So when other distributors started getting set up off the back of COVID, I was all for it. Um, uh, mm. Yeah, it's, um, yeah. It's not a good thing. <laughs> and is that happening down there as well? Is 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 DC? I can't remember the name of the the distributor DC went to, but I think I don't know if that's you know worldwide or if that was just in the states. Uh, the last I spoke to a retailer about it, I think they'd kind of forgotten about us or like smaller markets around the world, mm. so they were still in the process of of working out what would happen with with the DC distribution with, um, cause I think there's probably only about 30 comic stores in Australia. Yeah. It's uh, 30, in the entire, 30 stores in the entire continent. Is that what you just said? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's not great. Yeah. And then um, like so you'll find, we're, we're um, market to matter yet. Yeah. Yeah. But you got to consider our population that per capita just isn't there. And it's not just for this industry. It's for, the music industry and i mean a lot of the most famous musicians over here star in musicals and they'll act and all these types of, there's there's not many people in the arts that make big bucks from just doing one thing right so, yeah the per capita just isn't here now always i always ask this when people are crowdfunding things do you have the intention of putting it in bookstores afterwards are you are you going to take I, it beyond crowdfunding? I do, but it's going to be under my terms. I'm not going to do it through Diamond. Um, mm -hmm. uh, I figure 90% sure I'm just going to lean into my skill set and uh, try and sell the book um, to individual stores. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, yeah, that's that's pretty much the answer. <laughs> no, it's, you know, it's the... We are lucky to live in a time when it's easier to do this stuff than it ever has been before and doing your own marketing and doing your own outreach to people and being able to find the contact information that you need online and all that kind of stuff. Uh, it was such a, it was such an absolute black box when I was coming up and you couldn't really, the idea of, you know, everything was a lot harder. Um, and, and now at least you can, you have these tools to publish and to raise money online and all that kind of thing. Uh, you know, I was talking to Barbara from Fanbase Press about this. Um, so I was considering just as a long term, considering the uh, publisher route and mm -hmm. just asked her around things like, does she go direct to Diamond? And they just don't. They use other yep. avenues like, Hoopla, I believe, is a big one over in the yeah, States. Yeah, she's very so, big on Hoopla. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, I mean, when you consider the amount of opportunity at your disposal to not only create your own web store but also sell and talk to, you know, stores <clears> a lot <throat> easier now, um, the economics of going through Diamond just doesn't really seem to make a whole lot of sense. Mm -hmm. um, when you consider man hours, when you consider time, um, is you know the best you can hope for is you know getting in the black because more often than not the industry is in the red. So, 
Yeah. You, 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 you have to sell so many copies to go through Diamond and to get into a comic shop. I mean, and, yeah. and, and, and again, you, you can go on. I, I, I made more money on Kickstarter with one campaign oh, uh, than I did, you know, uh, in like five years of putting, you know, comics in comic shops as, as a writer. It's just not it, it, it's it's not comparable. And so um, so, yeah, you do it yourself. And, 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 and the bar, you know, is lowered in a very pleasant way. You don't have to move that many copies for it to be a, a, a worthwhile scenario, right? A, a, a financially, and we've seen, we've seen this happen in so many other uh, uh, businesses, right? I mean, the music industry did this and, and I've said this before on this, on this show that, um, you know, it used to be that if you were a band, and one of the five important labels didn't want to put, you know, didn't want to spend a shit ton of money to record your record and put it in record shops. Then you were fucked. You were irrelevant. Right. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, you know, cut to now and people like us, we record albums like in rooms like this on our 13 inch laptops. We put them up on Bandcamp or, or, or fucking iTunes, uh, you know, and, and all of these things. And we make enough money to, to, to survive, to make it worthwhile. Some of us become megastars that way, right? Um, and and that's where we're at. And it's this really interesting time in the comic uh, business where it's like um, we're maybe a little bit ahead of it now, but it's almost like we are now where music was when like Napster came about, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. and, and the entire model's changing and shattering and and rearranging every day. And um, and you know we saw TV fracture also, right? You used to have TV, sh- you used to have TV shows that would pull in fifty million viewers, like not going to happen anymore, right? Now if you yeah. now if you can grab twelve million in, in prime time, you're fucking hitting it out of the park, right? That, that you know, like shows used to get canceled immediately for that, right? Um, uh, there's so much out there. There's so much opportunity, and uh, and 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 again, the bar is lower uh, in terms of success. Like you, you know, you can carve out your own little niche, you know niche. Um, and, uh, you know, sites like yours, you know, Anthony that have, um, you know, they have really dedicated fan bases. And if you can tap into those fan bases, um, uh, you know, then you got something, you know, I mean, that, 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 that is how my Kickstarters have, have, have been successful is, um, is, you know, you, 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 you find these pockets of comic book fans and you win them over, you know, uh, um, it's like a grassroots campaigning. You see, uh, you see a presidential candidate going to a a VFW in, in Minneapolis, um, and it's, it's a small group, um, but they're a dedicated group and they're an enthusiastic group and they vote and they tell other people and you go in and you win that room over and suddenly you have people that are going to be there for you every time. And they're going to tell more people about you. Right. And you kind of, you build this thing from the ground up. Um, everybody thinks you gotta like, you gotta go out and hit a grand slam right off the bat. It's not the case. You well, know? I, I think that, I don't know if it's my generation or Ryland's that will be the last that will not feel legitimate unless some distribution entity knights you and says, no, you're really a writer. You're really a filmmaker. You're really, because I've observed this. I put out an album in 2009. I've produced a bunch of movies, directed a couple of movies, and I've been doing this comic book thing. And it's the mindset from my generation was self-published novels was like, you were a laughing stock if you self-published. Loser. <laughs> because you couldn't convince one of 10 editors in New York City to buy a book. Fuck you, you don't, you're not a writer, you don't belong in this industry. And, oh my God, is that not even remotely true? But we all kind of bought into it. 
And mm. because of that, I've experienced this literally in every industry in the arts that I've worked in. They get you to make a bad deal by dangling your vanity in front of you. When I produced an album, the record company was like, well, we'll give you 17% of the profits if we put it in record stores, but 50% if you do digital only. Uh, and they, they wanted me to put it in record stores. And my first response was, what's a record store? It's 2009, <laughs> are you kidding me? So I only let them distribute it digitally uh, because I had learned my lesson of, we know your, 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 your vanity wants to be able to walk into a store and point at your thing and go, look, it's the record I produced because I'd had that experience in film hmm. where that you're, when you make an independent film, by the time you're done, you are as exhausted as any human has ever been in the history of mankind. And then your options are, well, I could four wall this and travel all over, spend the next year of my life, going into every city in America, going on their morning radio show on Friday morning, Friday night, my movie premieres, it plays maybe the weekend, then I take my print and I go to another city and I try to make a little more money. When you've just spent a year and a half, two years making a movie, you do not have that in you anymore. So a distributor will say, oh, we'll distribute your movie, we'll put it in movie theaters. And the minute that we'll put it in movie theaters, thing is on the contract, you're paying for the stapler that their assistant bought. You're paying for the valet parking when they go to lunch. You're paying for every single thing. And strangely, they have managed to be in business for 20 years while only distributing movies that have never made a profit. Mm. It's weird how that works. And yet, and the same thing's true. And look, I'm talking about indie movies. Paramount does that to people who have profit participation. You know, Madonna, I guarantee you, is lied to about the number of records she sells. I 100% guarantee you she gets a royalty report that's missing several million record sales because you know what Madonna can't do? She can't be in a record store in Manila checking to see how she's doing. You know what I mean? Like there's no, there's no way for anyone to monitor all of that. I'm so fairly they, they, certain that Madonna is no one under 40 is buying a Madonna CD right well, now. That is so. true too. But yeah. Not anymore. <laughs> but, so I uh, think the number one message from this podcast is to definitely yeah. know your market. <laughs> yeah. Oh, absolutely. Know your market and, and figure out how mm -hmm. much money you can make in that market and, make your thing for less money than you can make in that market. You know, that's the, that's, that's the, that is the hard math of it all. No. And that, that vanity thing is very real in the comic book business, even still, you know, we, uh, uh, you know, Anthony made a thinly veiled reference to, uh, to action lab, uh, uh, you know, at the beginning of this podcast. And um, a lot of people signed very shitty contracts there, um, you know, who are now fighting to get their, their rights back because, you know, for that very reason it was like okay well well i don't there's no other way for me to get my book in a comic shop and it's very important yep. to get my book in a comic shop and people aren't going to take me seriously unless my book's in a comic shop yep. and i would go so far as to say that you know i mean as, as early as four or five years ago like that was true you know like um if you wanted to 
um, everybody's, you know, everybody's trying to to get into Marvel or DC or Image or Aftershock or Boom or Vault. Um, and it wasn't that long ago where if you didn't have a book in a comic shop, you weren't going to be looked at by those those places. And that's changing, uh, uh, you know, very, very quickly. Um, and the uh, and the pandemic has helped uh, a lot. Um, but man, Kickstarter means a lot. Uh, these yeah. days, you know, there are a lot of ways to to get your stuff out there. Um, our friend David Pepos, uh, you know, we probably should have said at the beginning of the show, but um, he just won the Ringo Award for uh, for best single issue with a kickstarted book, mm-hmm. um, and yeah, that just, is that is fucking monumental. Yep. Yeah, I just finished a finished penning a article, a satirical article about him being trapped in uh, the land of Jose and that no one has seen him since Baltimore Comic Con, so that'll be, um, uh, that'll be coming out soon. Nice. <laughs> but yeah, it, it, it's it, that's sort of like when Miramax <clears throat> movies started winning Oscars, and now right. you've got, and then HBO started winning all the Emmys. Yeah. And it's that thing of like, no, you're not, but you're not legitimate. You're the bullshit weird-ass neighbor. You're not supposed to be winning awards for this stuff. But ultimately, the good work is being done where the good work is being done. And, you know, it's not necessarily Marvel and DC. I mean, I, I, I was when I got into self-publishing, I was very, very lucky. I literally had the most successful self-publisher in the history of comics as a business partner. And when we were going around trying to sell something and large companies made shitty offers to Kevin fucking Eastman, it was easy to turn to him and say, so you want to just... We'll just do this, the two of us, right? Because, you know, I was kind of amazed that big companies did not want to put money in the pocket of the guy who created the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. That seemed short-sighted to me to not want Kevin Eastman's next big thing. Uh, But they did not. They did not want it enough to pay real money for it. Mm. And again, a guy who published the first issue of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles in his living room in Maine is the perfect guy to go to and say, so what do you think? Do we do this ourselves? <laughs> Why? Yes. That has worked well for me in the past. As, <laughs> as it happens, that has, that has been okay for me. Mm. Um, you know, and when I think of that, I think about all the people who do not have the enormous lucky advantage that I had of having someone with that kind of experience say, no, you'll be okay. This is, this is going to, this is going to work out just fine. Um, but I, 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 I've seen it happen uh, recently in the IP game and in, in, in the, you know, in the film and TV, you know, uh, game, basically like, um, I mean, I, I've said it before on the show, but my business for the last, I don't know, eight to 10 years has been creating IP and, you know, selling it uh, uh, one way or another in Hollywood. Um, and it started with short stories and fiction. And now it's kind of, you know, morphed into, into comics uh, uh, as my comic career is kind of, taken off a little bit but um yeah i mean eight eight or ten years ago you had you know your short story had to be published by someone who mattered you know um uh, otherwise nobody gave two shits about it right um uh, and so you really had to fight to get it to get it published in the right place and then a few years later it was like okay well it doesn't have to be in the right place just get it published somewhere get it published anywhere it needs to have been published right um and now people do not give a fuck, right? Um, uh, you know, uh, a friend of the show, Sean Lewis, uh, who's running Kingspawn right now, 
um, uh, you know, he took a, uh, a, a sort of lesson for me with the short story stuff. I mean, I've, I've set up probably, you know, eight, nine short stories in Hollywood. And so he's like, oh, wow. So you can just do this. You write a short story. If it's good, Hollywood will, will, will option it and try and turn it into something. And so uh, he started turning them out and he sold, you know, three or four short stories in Hollywood, like in a very short period of time. Um, and, uh, you know, not published anywhere. Um, it, 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 you know, it, it's almost, it's just, they exist, their IP, let's get a hold of them. It's almost a detriment if, if they've been published now, because then they've been exposed. People have seen them. You know what I'm saying? Uh, yeah. uh, it's almost like, Hey, I have this thing. I'm going to take it to a publisher and people are like, no, let me see it first here. Take some money, you know? Um, uh, and so it's, it's amazing how the game has, has, has changed so much. And I'm, I'm seeing it with the, with, with the comic books too, where it's like, um, you know, I have I, I have the jump. I have uh, uh, the peacekeepers, um, and I I decided to hold them back to kickstart them first because I'm actually making money on my comics, <laughs> kickstarting them uh, as opposed to going right to comic shops and and making uh, you know the pennies we talked about earlier. Um, but I have a few more of each of those things to kickstart uh, before I take them to legitimate publishers, and I already have Hollywood like you know climbing climbing the fucking you know you know, trees trying to get into my window, <laughs> the window of my bedroom being like, yeah, you know, give them to us, give them to us. I'm like, the story's not even done, dude. You know, let me see him. Let me see him. Let me see him. Where it used to be like, fuck you. It's not finished. Fuck you. It's not in a comic shop. Fuck you. It hasn't won an award yet. Uh, all of these things. Um, you know, so again, like this, this stigma uh, uh, to self-publishing is gone. You know, the, the, yeah. Yeah. the, 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 you have to climb these four ladders before this happens all gone. You know what I'm mm -hmm. saying? It is the wild fucking West in the best way with this shit. And I love it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I guess um, the, the idea of storytelling can be in, within comics doesn't have to stay limited to comics. One, one of the things I do every so often is I'll take on a comics PR client just because I know how to sort of pitch a press release to. So it will be picked up by press outlets and, um, this particular uh, client, he his Kickstarter, he had uh, obviously a comic book, but he also had uh, uh, the cover was designed in such a way that if you put an app over it, it actually animated and moved the the actual front cover. Um, cool. yeah, and he got a, uh, a a voice artist to create sort of like a. You know the movie The Fog, where you have the the girl on the um, the radio co sort of giving updates throughout the entire uh, the the entire movie. That that was happening as well. So it's kind of this idea of storytelling and adding sort of these sort of like transmedia conduits to enhance the story. And we're doing it as well. We we signed we we signed a digital distribution uh, deal with, for the anthology with uh, Macroverse, um, who do these sort of, uh, they're based in LA, they do this sort of immersive um, uh, storytelling of um, uh, comic books where they've um, it's sort of, as, as you you know, with guided view, with comicsology, how you you sort of flick through that, it's like that. But you have different elements of the the uh, panel uh, pop up into view, so it's not just a panel. It's the you're reading the part of the story which is next relevant to the actions of the character. So it, it's uh yeah, so um, there's a lot out there that you can do to greatly enhance your story. 
Yeah, I'm a, when I did my web, web series in 99, I had a lot of uh, interactive stuff. And it kind of amazes me that there isn't more of this. Like I'd have a scene where a character reads a letter on screen. And in a movie, you do the over the shoulder shot or you hear the character's head as he's reading the letter. I made it a downloadable to PDF. You want to know what he's looking at, download the PDF, read it on your desktop. I had a scene where a character was in a bar and a band started playing and the character leaves the bar and I said, you want to hear the whole song? There's a, it's a, a freestanding video of the band playing the song. If you just want to hear the whole thing, then you can get back to the story we were in the middle of. And I was doing this in 1999, 2000. And it's wild to me that that's not still happening, that, that no one has done that, that webs that shows on Netflix, Hulu, whatever, don't have like, you know, that only murders in the building didn't that they didn't produce the actual podcast and make that a thing you could download and listen to Steve Martin and Martin Short doing a whole 10 minute podcast. Like, I want to hear those episodes. Why didn't they like they could have produced that and it would have been a great, you know, a great thing to tag into there. Yeah, but, the closest uh, thing like that I've come across was uh, Tropic Thunder, where Robert Downey Jr. does do the DVD commentary and character, like he says in the in the movie, he'll do. Yeah, there, there's just so much stuff you can do like that. But we should we should probably wrap up. We usually wrap up the show by asking where where can we find you and what have you got coming out next? Uh, Gary, why don't we start with you? Okay. Um, you can find my stuff on garyproudly.com or at gestaltcomics.com. Um, coming up next, I've got uh, Talgard Tome 2, which is my uh, my sort of series of sword and sorcery four-page stories so they're all written by me and all drawn by different australian artists all with the same character and where do those where can we find those i'm sorry uh, garyproudly.com okay. or gestaltcomics.com great and anthony uh, yeah, the best place you can find anything I do is soderandtollpass.com, uh, where we have, you know, a bunch of articles uh, around the uh, comic book uh, news and reviews. And uh, to check out the anthology, Producing the End of the World, uh, if you just go to at Twitter, uh then you will be able to find... Um, a lot of background noise going on. Yeah, so if you go to at Soda Toll Pass at Twitter, you'll be able to um, uh, just click on the pinned tweet and go straight to the link to support. Launches November 12th. Great. And you'll be very excited. You, you, the, the suspense from watching this episode and discovering what Ryland and I wrote as blurbs, it's going to hold you at least 10 days. Just the sense of wondering, wondering what those blurbs look like. Ryland's is no, really, it's just fine. Uh, <laughs> well, he's already sent it to me, so that's the thing. <laughs> I'm teasing. But uh, you, uh, Ryland, how about you? Uh, I really dug the story, uh, and, and you'll see my blurb is a home run. It's a, it's, it's like a, you know, it, it's a kick everything off blurb. It's a, you're gonna love my blurb. Uh, get her done. Uh, I am at Ryan Grant on all forms of social media. That's R-Y-L-E-N-D-G-R-A-N-T. I always spell it because it's not a real name. My parents drunkenly arranged letters, and now I have to spell it for you. 
Um, but my uh, books, the uh, Ringo Award-winning Aberrant and the four-time Ringo-nominated uh, Banjax are available in fine comic shops everywhere and via uh, Amazon and Comixology and all stuff like that. Uh, announcements like in the next few months about the future of Banjax that's back home. There'll be more. Um, I'm still figuring out exactly how and when and all that stuff, but uh, uh, more to come and and soon. So stay tuned for that. Um, my Kickstarter books, the Astral Projection Thriller, The Jump, and my Fargo S Crime Drama, The Peacekeepers, are available available via Backerkit right now. Um, if you go to the jump 2backerkitcom that's the jump one word and the number two, the jump 2backerkitcom you can find all that and you can find signed copies of Aberrant and Banjax and all that good stuff. Um, it's a one-stop Ryland Grant shop. Um, and as I said, uh, issue three of my latest and greatest, my Tokusatsu Joint Suicide Jockeys, is in comic shops as of today. So get down and get it. And uh, I believe that this is the best issue of the series. It's the one that kind of like really leans into the zen of it all. Um, and I think it's pretty badass. So I'm proud of it. Uh, go check it out. Great. And you can find me at davidavalonefreelance.com, which branches out to all of the things, all of the socials, and all whatever I got going on. Uh, Elvira Meets Vincent Price 3 will be coming soon. It has my favorite title, which is Raiders of the Lost Schlock. Um, and uh, after that will be the 40th anniversary, which I, I'll whisper the title, The Death of Elvira. <laughs> Shocking. And uh, for this Halloween season, the last week, uh, Go to talesofthefrightened.com and you will find a 16-track combination of scary music and scary stories written by my father and performed by Australian super legend Vernon G. Wells from The Road Warrior, who's got a terrific voice and can really uh, deliver a scary story. Until next time, thank you guys for coming on and thanks everyone for listening. Thanks, thanks for, for having us. Our pleasure. If you're watching us on YouTube, be sure to smash that like button. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or other fine purveyors of ear crack, please leave us a five-star review. And wherever you're watching and or listening, subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. We'll see you back here next week for more madcap hijinks on the Writer's Block. For more information, visit PendantAudio.com. Thanks for listening.